Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Well, good morning, podcast listeners to uh, Thrive at 20, our podcast series celebrating our 20th anniversary in September of 2023. We're very pleased this morning to be joined by Jay Newman, who's the Senior Vice President and Head of Commercial Development, Pricing and Reimbursement at Spark Therapeutics. God, that's a long title, Jay. Do you have enough room for that on a business card? Of course, we don't print business cards anymore, but if you had to, you'd have to have it wrapped around the back. <laughs> of course, but I don't have a business card. I try not to travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I travel is not as much fun as it used to be, that's for sure. Oh, my goodness. So it it's really kind of cool because we get to visit with each other and it's been a little while. I know we touch base from time to time, but um, it's going to be fun to just to catch up on a number of fronts. I'm going to start with where we met. And I think we were just talking about that before we captured the audio here this morning, but I seem to recall it was in Michigan and you were running the business for eye care in that area for Allergan. And I was, putzing around doing practice management out of Buffalo and taking that short little flight across the the bottom of the lake. And uh, when they didn't cancel it at 6.30 in the morning, they, when they didn't have enough passengers, Northwest Airlines used to claim there was a broken windshield. So I'd get to that little airport in Buffalo, you know, drag my butt out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. And you know, I'm not a morning person. So I'd get there and the guy would just look at me, see me coming, and he'd have that look on his face like, you're not going to be happy with what I'm about to say next. Uh, <laughs> broken windshield, Mr. Sagan. <laughs> you can turn around and go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's a broken windshield. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Jay, we, you've certainly come a long way since those those times. Probably that's going back more than 20 years ago. We won't give the exact number because it'll embarrass both of us. But, um one of the big reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast was we've been talking to lots of folks in the North American life science industry that we see doing some really innovative things. And you've always been someone that was not afraid to break the mold. And you did that everywhere. I, I saw and got to work with you. And since you've, we've moved on from the same workspace, I keep hearing it about you. So either you're breaking the rules and ending up in, incarceration and I, i'm hearing about it which is not the case but could be in your case where <laughs> you're just on the edge of the envelope which has kind of been your style along know where the edge of the envelope is and go right up to the edge of it and uh and have some fun so let's start with uh, our time at allergan together sure which would have been now you went through commission officer training right in the army before you got into the life science industry I did, yeah. I went to uh, Lock Haven University, a small uh, state school in the center of Pennsylvania. wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I went to school to be a, a physical therapist. Realized that that wasn't going to happen very soon into it. A, I didn't like it. Uh, the, the hard sciences. I love the life sciences: anatomy, physiology, physics, kinesiology, but the quantitative chemistry and qualitative chemistry and Sing in a lab, dropping stuff into beakers just wasn't my thing or test tubes. Uh, so I uh, parlayed that into um, a degree that I could get out of school as quickly as possible because I had joined the the, the ROTC program where uh, I actually, one of my fun facts is that I was the head of the cadet commander of the ROTC program as a senior. Uh, and I was also a president of a fraternity at the same time. So how many people do you know that actually led a fraternity and an ROTC program at the same time? And went to class and got their degree done. And got to class and got the degree done. Correct. Yeah. So uh, met my wife, Jackie, there. And uh, uh, I got commissioned in December of 85, did my <clears throat> jump school and some basic officer training and ended up in Germany for three years. Uh, we got married. We traveled to uh, the bulk of Europe as 22, 23-year-olds. Uh, came back to the U.S., went to the infantry officer school, 
was ultimately stationed at Fort Drum, which is up in your neck of the woods, uh, not quite far north, but the same miserable weather, and uh, decided that that the Army wasn't fun anymore. And when the Army stops being fun, you get out. So uh, in the middle of in the middle of a a recession, uh, which I was unaware of because I was in the Army in an insular kind of environment for a while, but uh, in the middle of a recep, uh, recession and two weeks before Iraq invaded Kuwait, I decided to resign my commission. Uh, and it took me about seven years to get the job with Allergan. Um, I got offers from Tap Pharmaceutical and Allergan, um, accepted the role at Allergan. I just like the the leader better. I think that's an important thing we want to talk about is it's not always where you work, but who you work for. Yeah, that I think is important as we talk about leadership and career development and career decisions. Uh, and and ironically, I avoided dealing with the uh, the tap issues that they had with uh, Lupron Depot. So I took the Manhattan Territory. I uh, did that for about four and a half years, and then ended up uh, taking the. Uh, I was in line for the promotion. What I mean in line. There were 11 jobs, 10 or 11 jobs. And when a job came up and it was your turn, you took it. And it didn't matter whether it was in your backyard or it was across the country. And if you didn't take it across the country, then you probably got back into the end of the line. If you were fortunate enough to get back into the end of the line and accepted to roll it in Michigan, Um, had never stepped foot in the state, had never been anywhere near Detroit. Um, And I, found out that it was a wonderful place to live with wonderful people. And I inherited a uh, sales team that had a strong core, but needed some work. Uh, And I was fortunate enough to uh, get to know you better and to work with you closer. I was listening to Woody's uh, podcast this morning, and I know you guys were recollecting how we all met. You were the complete uh, product manager. So you were the man on complete. And uh, we pharma guys were trying to self-complete at the time and ultra care. Uh, and we got to know each other there. And then when you moved back to Canada and became part of Sheldon's operating team, we all worked very closely together. And uh, you and I have shared many a car ride and many a mile <laughs> driving either together or uh, with one of the reps on the team, which, which was an amazing team. Uh, all around the state of Michigan, states of Michigan, Ohio, Western Pennsylvania. From yeah. all, right, Rob? Yeah, that, that, and a lot of those people ended up going on to much bigger and better things. I think, I want to say like the majority of your original team of 10 ended up being promoted. But I want to come back to that in a sec, uh, Jay, because developing talent is a big area of interest for our listeners. So, but I do want to unpack a little bit, Jay, what? Well, do you remember what the motivation was for you to serve in the army? Where did that come from? Um, you know, truthfully, uh, like you, raised in a modest middle, middle, lower middle class. Uh, my parents had me when they were nineteen, so they got off to a a slower start than than most. I was first one from my family to graduate from college. My father went and would have graduated, but he had me, and he felt like uh, he needed to stay home and work, even though my grandparents were willing to support the family. So, uh, you know, he ended up with a very successful career in the Postal Service as a manager and uh, ultimately a postmaster and is still doing well today. Uh, but for me, um, I was, and despite coming from meager means, a pretty much an immature 20-year-old uh, and two things happened in my life around the age of 20 that changed. One, um, and I don't mean to get mushy about this, but meeting my wife, my my girlfriend, who ended up becoming my wife of nearly 40 years, Jackie, uh, helped me settle down and uh, see that I had potential. Uh, but then also a friend talked me into ROTC, and uh, I felt like it was an excellent way to develop management and leadership skill sets. If you'll remember, 
uh, even though it was 83 at the time, it was on the back end of some of the military escalations. There were, it was pretty attractive to uh, move into the military as an officer uh, for all the reasons that I brought up. And frankly, I didn't know, Rob, what I wanted to do. I mean, I come from a professional family. I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to teach. Could you imagine me, Rob, as a teacher? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been, you ever seen the movie, Mr. Woodcock? I would like That would have been me. Uh, <laughs> and so I knew I didn't want to teach. Uh, I knew I wanted to work in a corporation. I wanted to do something big. I just didn't know what it was. And I thought that the best place to start would be the military and uh, either make that a career or develop the right competencies and skill sets to parlay that into some kind of of professional career outside of the military. And and you've always talked very fondly of that experience and how it molded you, Jay. If, if, if What would be the most important leadership lesson you took from the military? I know you learned a lot. But if you think especially the things that really applied to your future career decisions, what, what would be the most important thing? Oh, boy, that's, you know, tactically, uh, I learned the value of being direct and that people that report to you that are truly are mature and truly want to learn and truly want to be coached and or have made mistakes and uh, they need to be reprimanded, don't want it sugar-coated. They want to be told what they did wrong and what they could do better. As long as you as the leader have observed that behavior, you need to have the courage and the tact to develop or to deliver uh, those messages dependent upon the situation in a very succinct manner. And that's difficult for a 23-year-old who's leading a team that probably is an average age of 30 to 40 years old. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, really they don't need to respect me. They need to respect the rank. And so I think coaching and counseling people in a direct manner as a young person and uh, the need to earn respect versus demand it. Uh, I, I still to this day, when we hire uh, younger folks who develop people who have talent, uh, who move into leadership positions, obviously, I don't say it to them, but I'll say it to their reports that, you know, that was a second lieutenant mistake. And and what I mean by that is when you're in the military, you have a, an opportunity to make those type of leadership mistakes, hopefully not under fire or in a combat role, which I have no combat experience. I was a veteran of the Cold War. Not a shot was fired that I know of. I certainly didn't shoot any. Um, but we had an important mission on the fold the gap. And it was uh, really, really important to uh, to me to learn and, and and be pragmatic by those mistakes I've made. And I do see those basic mistakes being made, uh, and I refer to them as second lieutenant mistakes, tying that back to me and my experience in your question, was that was the value to it, was having an immense amount of responsibility in a life or death situations that uh, helped me grow and mature very, very quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Jackie was right. You know, as a 20-year-old... <laughs> Uh, they're sowing wild oats and suddenly you're in a a role with tremendous discipline and responsibility that that atmosphere was probably good for young jay it was my father thought i should have stayed in and become a general <laughs> i could see that <laughs> i told him i'm kind of a general now <laughs> yeah only nobody's shooting at you yeah, exactly <laughs> well and that was what I really observed, Jay, when we got to work so closely together, and just to correct the record, I was not living in Canada when we were working together, although I could understand why you'd say that, because we consider Buffalo as a Canadian jurisdiction. For all it has a Tim Horton. You know, they have Tim Hortons there, and they have a lot of hockey fans, so we'll, we'll adopt them as our, our little pet city. No, we love 
Christine and I loved living in Buffalo. It was a great little community. We loved it as much as you loved living in Michigan. We loved upstate New York. The people were fantastic. I have a theory, or we have a theory, that the colder the weather, the nicer the people. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't know what that says about Southern California, but I won't <laughs> I won't say anything there. Uh, but yeah, we, it was just fun. I mean, as much as we had to bundle up for at least seven months of the year. Um, we had a lot of fun, you and I, getting to work with a team over there in the Midwest that, as you say, had a lot of potential but needed firm leadership. And I think your style fit that group perfectly. It, it didn't take long for many of them to start to find their own legs in their careers and move forward. Have you stayed in touch with any of that gang? Yeah, I've, I've talked to uh, Todd quite a bit. Um, and I talked to Bernadette. Bernadette and I stay in touch. Uh, and I'm trying to remember, uh, those are the two main folks that that we, we we communicate with the most. Yeah, and we had Todd on our first podcast uh, in this series, Todd Wood, who you and I got to work with a little bit together in that group. And then uh, we got it. I've told people my, my Bernie story at least two or three times a year over the past 20 years. When... My life science clients ask me, you know, what makes for a great rep? Uh, I say the, only, the best compliment your customer can give to a great rep is she thinks she works for me. And I was sitting in an ophthalmologist's office in Pittsburgh. I'll, I'll use, I won't use the full name because I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to leave any personal details on here. We'll just call him Dr. M, who was the biggest cataract surgery, surgeon in Pittsburgh at the time. And, he had me in for the day doing the practice management stuff. And I'd only met Bernie, I think, a little bit during the day. And she introduced me. And then I spent the day there. And at the end of the day, she came crashing through the door. And I was sitting in the office just down the hall from Dr. M's office. The door between our two offices was open. And he kind of gave me a sideways glance thinking, I wonder what all that commotion is out in my uh, patient area. And during, <laughs> during the course of the day, three or four of the reps had been in to see him from all the different companies, not Allergan, but different companies. And he kept the door open between us and he would come in right after the rep left his office. And we had some good laughs over some of the stuff that they would talk about, not, not engage him at all, just blah, blah, blah. And he was very patient. One rep tried to come in and sell him retinal products. He had no retin in his practice. It was just a joke, right? So <laughs> it, the, and the day got worse and worse. And I was just embarrassed on behalf of our industry. And then Bernie comes in and, and there's this laughter and positive energy. And she comes in and says something about his OR kits had run out. He was supposed to do surgery the next day, but she went around and got some for him and drove like an hour to West Virginia and made sure he didn't have to cancel his surgery the next day. And I mean, this, that wasn't her job, but she just, Bernie was just so committed to her customers. And he came to me and said, you know, the, be the best thing I love about her, she thinks she works for me. <laughs> uh, and that is the ultimate compliment, right? From any customer in any space is that the people who come and visit um, have that true undeniable uh, energy to make the customer more successful, no matter what that, who that customer is. And, and that separates the great reps from the mediocre in the first probably 30 seconds of them entering a customer's premises. Are you here for me? Or are you here for you? Right. And uh, I think that's what has made Bernie so successful for so long. And no, no, no surprise to you and me that she was often recognized for that in her career and keeps being an in-demand professional, even though she's probably been now 30 years in the business. So, yeah. but, you, but, you know, Jay, you should take some credit for that too, because I really enjoyed, because I had a lot of visibility to your people. I, I felt like I was the uncle coming in from Buffalo. I don't only see them once every few weeks and <laughs> you know and i but i'd see that the, the the change you were seeing them very often and spending a lot of time with them but they really responded to that direct approach they they never had to guess what you were thinking um they knew where they stood you did it with a a bit of humor and a kind you were kind-hearted but man yeah you were you were direct in your approach and they seemed to really appreciate that yeah i think the uh you know looking at looking at bernie is a good example. Todd's a great example. People with, and and frankly, two people that were great reps with two different 
goals, end goals in mind in terms of their career, right? Todd wanted to sit in a corner office and, and we knew he could and he ended up doing that. And Burn wanted to be the absolute best rep she could be and maximize her earning power until she was ready to hang it up, uh, given her personal situation. And, uh, you know, you want to fit, I think, for the listeners, the important thing there is that development isn't just about moving upward. Right. Development is about understanding what your employees' career goals are. And your and when I say career goals, I mean 15, 20 years down the road. And that is a really difficult thing for a younger professional to grasp. If you come, when folks come to me, and Allergan is a good example, uh, but even now at Spark, and and we say, um, should I take this this job that's in California? I used to say to them, where do you want to be 10 or 15 or 20 years from now? And they would take a step back and they'd say, well, why do you ask that? And I said, because I can't tell you whether that job that you're going to take today is going to help you get to Earth uh, to get to your end goal or not. Going to Irvine may not be something that you need to do if you want to be a field leader the rest of your life or yep. don't sit in a corner office. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people really appreciated that because uh, we, to steal the term, I prefer we play chess versus checkers with a career. And, you know, going back to development, I, I, I see three categories. I see the person that does want to sit in the corner office and, by the way, has the potential to sit in the corner office. You know, part of that conversation of just because somebody wants to sit in a corner office someday doesn't necessarily mean they have the runway or potential to do so. But that's one category. The second category is, and it's really difficult in this day and age with uh, the current generation, it's maximize the job you're in. Uh, you know, we kind of had an unwritten rule at Allergan. You needed to do at least three years in a job, which always made sense. Because, you know, in your first year, you're learning the job. The second year, you're putting your plans in place. And in the third year, you're you're reaping the benefits and maximizing the competencies and skill sets. And then you're ready for a lateral move or a move upward, you know, as you come out of that. So, so mastering the job you're in is part of your development. And number three is for those individual contributors like Bernadette who have no desire to move uh, out of the role they're in, but want to do some things differently, it's job satisfaction. How can we create a development plan that gives them incremental opportunities to see different parts of the organization contribute differently while still maintaining a high level of performance in their core job? So when you think about development, it's not just about vertical. I had a gentleman uh, that I started to manage about a year ago. And uh, we were booking one-to-ones. And I like to separate the one-to-ones and development conversations separate because the one-to-ones always involve very tactical business issues that are coming up and you never get to the development part. So uh, I booked a development piece, and this is an individual contributor uh, who didn't want to be promoted, who wanted to do their job and was willing to take on extra extra things to contribute to the organization and to just have some spice in his his role. But uh, he wanted nothing to do with what he felt was development. So he sent me a note. He said, uh, you can take that half hour or 45 minutes off the calendar. I don't need to talk about development. And I, I texted him back or emailed him back and said, well, why not? And he said, because I don't think I need to be developed because I'm fine in the job I'm in. And I said, by virtue of that statement, we're going to keep our meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he needed to have a little time what you and I used to call Sheldon's slap room. Exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. The guy you and I used to report to. Oh, we need to have a conversation, young man. <laughs> and it was, you know, and it was really good because we were able to have that conversation around around what I've just talked to is, is development isn't just for those that are, are moving up the corporate ladder uh, and that 
part of part of as I spoke to him, I we we pulled out the fact that he loves his job. He's in D.C. He does certain things that support my team. He does certain things that support the state government team. He's got a lot of skills. He's an attorney. He's a really good, uh, a good part. A little quirky, but really, really great employee as I've gotten to know him. And, you know, as I coached him on, on development, what really came out was what motivates him as we spoke was I really like taking on extra things that are kind of sort of in the area that I work, but not directly in my job description, but I want to do it because it adds spice to my job. It adds something to my role that I look forward to that I otherwise wouldn't do. And I end up learning something and I end up contributing to the organization in a different way, but in no way am I look um, am I looking to move laterally uh, or vertically in the organization. But it's still, to your point, right? It's still development. It's development in role. And yeah. you know, now that you and I have been through a longer cycle in our career, we see so many people who are great examples of that, like Bernie, who, you know, is still such a professional in her territory management because she took that spice, <laughs> that spice trail along the way, and never got complacent and uh, continues to add value. Has stayed up with technology, and the other thing that's cool. Jay, in, in the travel that you've had in your career, and look at just, it's remarkable that in your generation, to coming in the workforce when you did, there's not a lot of our cohort that stayed with the company as long as you stayed with Allergan, and yet felt like it was progressive and interesting. You're like almost 25 years there, and you covered most of the country. You got a chance to go over to Europe for a while, if I recall correctly. Yeah. and. You got tremendous amount of personal growth out of that. You and Jackie had a lot of fun. But what for you, when you look back, and I know you look back very fondly on those years, what would be the top three highlights, Jay, for you personally and professionally of that time at Allergan? No, that's a great question. Allergan was amazing. I uh, I think, Robbie, the first thing is, there's some funny stories that come out of this. Not in a, I won't get into ones that, all the stories, but the funny ones uh, as it relates to the business, if you think about it, and as I reflect back on Allergan, uh, it was a company that was in a lot of trouble when we all started. Yeah. Late 80s, early 90s, right? The, the people that uh, we were spun off by Smith, Klein, Beecham, uh, the people at the switch that were, were, were highly successful kind of took their eye off the ball. And we had uh, all the key products going generic. Uh, we weren't sure what we wanted to be. We weren't. We really didn't know how to manage uh, the three businesses um, as a as a unified kind of front across optical, pharma, and, and AMO, the medical optics. And uh, frankly, if it wasn't for Botox and Alphagen, it wouldn't be an Allergan right now. Right. Uh, and we all played a significant role in that, and I think we all benefited from it personally, career-wise, and financially, because those of us that joined and stuck with it, uh, really, whether and again, whether we moved up or you stayed in role as you were, you benefited uh, in, all, in, in all those ways, uh, personally and professionally, on the success that I think we rebuilt. In other words, that was a restart. And yeah. if you think about the restart, it wasn't just the products, but um, I, I don't know if I can mention names, but Mike Ball was a very important part of changing the the culture and the dynamic and the decision making. And we was able to manage up, not that there was a long way to manage up in the organization, but he really knew how to run a sales and marketing organization that frankly could have went out of business. We pulled these two products off the shelf. Uh, and I, the, the, the thing that I talk about Allergan that um, probably doesn't always go over well with my Ivy League and MIT brethren at, at Biogen, certainly not at Biogen and even at Spark, is that we were at Allergan a scrappy. And I know, didn't you have the nickname Scrappy? No, I, uh, Sparky. <laughs> Sparky. 
spark. So very similar, right? We were yeah. sparky, we were scrappy. And uh, the way I always told the story was it was like we were a bunch of state schoolers, right? We, we got in to this company, we rolled up our sleeves. We were probably a little naive about how bad of shape the company was in, but we weren't. We were happy to have jobs and we weren't smart enough to look somewhere else or weren't naive enough to look somewhere else. And what we ended up doing and what we learned through our career is that anybody can develop a strategy. And the strategies that we developed were very simple. I called them state school strategies. And I don't mean that to, to, to denigrate state schoolers uh, or even Ivy Leaguers, but we had state school strategies, meaning, meaning that they were simple, they were easy to understand, they could be measured and executed, and most importantly, we could incentivize against them, uh, and they weren't siloed. And so everybody, we knew top to bottom what we had to do, and we were held accountable to it, and they were simple. Our, what was our goal? Our goal was to grow Lumigan to the number one share or the share X, and every echelon had a share goal. And if you hit that share goal and you maintain that share in that share growth, you got rewarded very, very well. And there was no window dressing, no BS. And I tried to, not I tried, I did apply that to our Luxterna launch at uh, Sparking because I think that the thing that Allergan did so well was operationalizing strategy. Everything I just said really is operational. Oh, yeah. Well, and and, and I've had a couple other guests like Todd, an ex-Allergan person like yourself. It was the first thing when I asked him all of the takeaways from that experience together. And he also pointed to the turnaround and being part of the turnaround from a company that was languishing, that was constantly for sale. You remember how many people used to come up to the yeah. tower, second tower and be doing audits of Allergan. And he always knew somebody in a blue suit was down the hall in that audit room was really on campus to yep. do due diligence to buy the company, whether it was J&J or Pfizer or whoever. It was always somebody there poking around because we were on the radar and no wonder our stock hadn't moved for right. a long time until Mike got there. And to your point, if Mike did anything, he did a lot of things very impressively, but he read the situation very well, very emotionally intelligent man. And I think his gift was, as you say, make the strategy simple, but he created a culture uh, that matched the environment that he needed to create perfectly. And uh, that's probably the big reason why the place turned around is he got, he got us all to run faster. Like, yes, you know, we, we, our, our discretionary effort was off the charts. We were so engaged in our work. There was such a, I don't know, you can call it a spree de corps or whatever you want to call it, but yeah, he had people running through the wall for him. And uh, there's a lot to be said for that. I, I, I could, yeah, you, you put it best is Alacan was the restart. And it was a restart with the right people in place. We were all hungry. Uh, and, you know, the old adage of work hard, play hard, which probably doesn't, you know, the, the, the play hard part is a little tuned down this day and age. But we were able to really enjoy each other's company, have friendly senses of, of competition. And at the, the end of the day, when we were successful, we all celebrated together. And yeah. I... I really strove to take that 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 ability to operationalize a simple strategy uh, to heart. And so when I've got when I and you know I, I was at Biogen in between Spark and Allergan. Been at Spark for seven years now. I'm grizzly old veteran, forty, the fortieth person hired. I'm still here, uh, and I'm and I'm loving it. I started as the head of market access. My job was to get the first million dollar gene therapy product approved uh, for a disease that wasn't being treated for uh, and that the patients were diagnosed and told to go home and learn to live a life of blindness. And they disappeared somewhere into the 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 uh, ecosphere and we had to go out and find them. Uh, and one of the things that I thought was really important that I learned uh, at Allergan, in contrast to Biogen, who had a lot of smart people, that a lot of 
MIT and, and um, uh, Ivy League school level uh, strategies, which were wonderful. They were well-funded. That was another thing. We'd have a lot of money for Ivy League strategies, right? Um, yep. Biogen does. But what I found is, is that they became very siloed. They were very uh, complex. They weren't well integrated across uh, the organization. They weren't measurable. And uh, because of that, you weren't really able to incentivize the behavior you needed to incentivize. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to have that compare and contrast as I moved over, over to Spark. I said to myself, we, we have a complicated product. Uh, we've got a complicated marketplace. We have a first of its kind. Uh, it's going to be a one-time treatment. It's going to be close to a million dollars. And it's for an inherited retina disease, which nobody knows about. They don't know about our company. The only thing they know is they spend zero dollars on this disease. And now they're going to spend a million dollars on it. And uh, our, our strategy of finding patients and the strategy that we developed to market access was very simple. Uh, we're going to drive the clinical value of this by showing that the, the change in function, which we had amazing data for, which made our jobs really a lot easier, uh, amazing data that was videotaped, and we're able to uh, uh, incentivize the account teams to uh, drive a certain goal of policy language, utilize the data that also included, again, videotaped pre and post treatment of these uh, uh, low vision and blind uh, trial participants and the payers knew they had no choice but to cover it. And well, you, you, the brilliance of that, Jay, and I'm so glad you brought that up because that is something that I have sent people to talk to you who come to me and they've got difficult challenges in reimbursement, whether it's up here on this side of the border or down stateside. And a lot of them, as you know, because you've talked to a few of the people that have sent your way, are in like rare disease spaces, yeah. which is very similar to the, the, the mechanics you were describing. And they're up against that stiff climb to get either private or public coverage for something that is extremely uh, narrow in its benefit, but deep in its benefit to those patients, like life restoring, life saving in some cases, not symptomatic relief. Um, yeah. and I know I've had feedback from those folks saying to me, man, that Jay's strategy was simple, but brilliant. Like it was to make sure that the emotional component, the the light, day in the life of that eye, eye care patient was understood by everybody in the decision-making chain of command. And you refuse to, you, you refuse to stand down. Like you, you and your people from what I was hearing back, just said, we are here to lobby on behalf of these people who don't have a voice and we're not going to stop until we get the reimbursement. That's right. That's right. And it was heavy Medicaid too. So, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a really, we have very progressive attorney uh, who's still with the company, our chief legal officer now. And uh, we were able to, uh, I don't know if these technical details are relevant here, Robbie, but I, I think they are for, in fact, many of the people that you send my way and that I speak to, are unaware of the fact that the 21st Century's Cures Act provides for manufacturers in a pre-approval phase to share product level information with health plans. And that's a big deal because we were able to get our phase one, two, and our three. In rare disease, they do one, two together. So our phase one, two, and phase three uh, once it was unlocked and it was submitted to the FDA, we were able to share that investigative veridity and the Parvavac data with uh, our MSLs, with the payers, uh, so that they were able to see the data and understand the disease, the genetic testing, who Spark was, and how our gene therapy worked and frankly, understand what their exposure was before anybody ever promoted to a healthcare professional. And that was the whole point, is the whole point to the 21st century's cures. We went out eight months before approval 
uh, and probably made a couple hundred calls for, you know, a team of 11 people is a heck of a lot for a new company over a period of time and uh, had access to everybody that we needed to have access to. And uh, because they saw the data before anybody else, when we got approval on December 19th of 2017, uh, we had positive coverage determinations coming in by Christmas Eve. <laughs> well, and, and you know, it, it, it's the foresight of your owners and the senior management team to, to make that heavy up investment at the front end. And so many organizations are too short-sighted. I mean, I have clients on this side of the border and Canadian subsidiaries who don't get their head count until the drug is approved. It's like, oh, you know, come on. Now, yeah. you know, you're setting every up, everybody up to fail, not just the people that you employ in the company, but the offices that they show up in in reimbursement discussions. Everybody feels this enormous pressure. And that's not a good environment to put a salesperson or a reimbursement person where they and the customer have this enormous pressure to do something that they're not fully briefed on, that they don't have an attendant chance to absorb the ramifications and figure out how they could make this work. But to give them almost a full year to work through that uh, shows respect not only for your people, but respect for the customer and the system to try to figure this out together, to kind of co-create a solution that works for the patient, for the payer, for the physician, for every stakeholder along the way, it's not something you can just flip a switch on. So that's probably what differentiates Spark as much as anything in my mind is it takes a lot of guts and you know cash and courage to fund that activity ahead of time and get the market ready for something that is going to be disruptive in a positive way. So to me, I think, Jay, whether you were responsible for getting them to understand that, which I understand you were, or other folks had to lean in to create that awareness. That to me is what has separated Spark from most of the other industry that's now following your lead in the genetic space, right? Because genetics are taking off and uh, customized medical care and pharmaceutical products and devices, the wave of the future. So that must feel really good for you to have parlayed all the experience you had in that 20 some years with Allergan into something now that I'm sure you know, as you look at your career and Think about all the patients that are at the other end of the work, Jay, that you've done and your people have done. Man, it's got to bring a smile to your face to think that it does. you've created life-saving therapy and access to life-saving therapy and sight-saving therapy for people to keep them from going blind. Well, you know, it's uh, Allergan was all about earnings per share. You know, Allergan was a great company, but at least for me, we were always focused on landing the 747 on the aircraft carrier every quarter. Then I got to, you know, got into Botox and there was some more, much more patient centricity there uh, just by virtue of the nature of what we were doing and who we were treating. Uh, and, but, but when I got to, to, to Biogen uh, for all the challenges that we have there, uh, they were a very good uh, run by scientists and certainly a patient centric organization. And Spark really just took it to the next level. Uh, I didn't have rare disease experience. Obviously, I didn't have uh, uh, gene therapy experience. And one of the things that I learned uh, is just because somebody doesn't have certain experiences doesn't mean they have the competencies and the skill sets to do the job. So I'm not that person that would say, well, we can't hire you here because you don't have gene therapy experience. Right, right. Uh, you know, you look at the the competencies and runway because somebody had to start it somewhere. Uh, you, you know, the other thing is, I, I know we're running up against time here. Not only did we do something differently with our clinical, the approach to our clinical cell uh, and our genetic testing, which, by the way, we genetically tested 54,000, over 54,000 uh, potential patients that had inherited retinal disease over a four and a half year period. There are about 200,000 in the U.S. So we're really proud of the sponsored testing program that we did. And even if the patients weren't identified as a potential RP65 mutated mutation uh, for inherited retinal disease, they got some kind of answer as to what was the genetic cause 
uh, of their blindness or low vision. The other thing that we did uh, that uh, we're going to we're continuing to advance and we're going to advance with our follow on therapies is an alternative payment model. So the drug is delivered in a hospital outpatient setting. And typically the way drugs are acquired there, where the hospital has all the leverage over the, the employers and the health plans is through a process called buy and bill. And without getting too detailed, uh, uh, let's just put it this way. In, in that model, the hospitals make more money on our drug than we do uh, wow. based on their ability to market up. And uh, half our payers and half the treatment centers, when I did my own research, uh, said you got to do in, be in the pre-approval phase, you've got to do something about the markup. Uh, but we also had half of the treatment centers that said, don't screw with the markup or <laughs> we're going to have a problem. Yeah. And those are the ones that were marking it up and taking some discounts and doing certain things. Uh, and hats off to Jeff Morazzo, our founder, uh, and Ron Phillip, my my manager, who's now the CEO. Uh, they not only encouraged, they demanded that we do something different. So we were able to, through cover of the fact that half of the treatment centers didn't want to lay out 850 or a million dollars for a drug that they may not get reimbursed for. They wanted the drug to come to them without them laying out any risk. Yeah. Uh, and so we were able to develop a program called the Spark Path, which has been branded and recognized. We are still being recognized five, six years after the fact by Health Industries Research Council for our payment model, our alternative payment model, which got the drug to the treatment center without them taking risk and without the payer incurring any egregious markups. And at the same time, we leveraged all of that for uh, reasonable coverage, 15-day turnover of PAs and an in-network benefit for the patients so that they're out of pocket uh, was not, was it at the lowest levels possible? So uh, in addition to what we did with our patient-centric care and calling on the, HC, the HCP writers uh, and, and genetic testers, pretty much a certain segment of the ophthalmology community, we were also able to put in place the first novel alternative payment model, uh, which I will admit is not perfect, but is a great first step and we, as well as some of uh, of our other partners, some of the folks you send my way uh, who are coming out with cell and gene therapy are also advancing that model and moving it forward. So, uh, you know, we feel like we made a mark. I feel like you made a mark. And, um, you know, I, I thank you for your interest in what we've done at Spark and um, you know, how I've kind of managed my career over the over the years yeah and i i think the brilliance of that jay when i step stand back from it and it goes right back to the first impression i had of you as a leader was you used to you did what sheldon did for you and i when we were you know when we were working for him and he was a great role model for this that you challenged your people to think better when you interacted with them your questions were tough uh they were on you know they weren't they were often squirming in the other chair, the Starbucks or the restaurants we were in, or even in the car we were driving in because you made them think. And I could just imagine you at Spark sitting with a group of executives thinking, we've got to find a way to solve for these competing interests across these stakeholders. What could we do that would allow us to come through with a strategy that made everybody hold or move the, move the process forward? And well, obviously from your description, you figured it out, but I, I, I could just... I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during those meetings, watching you hold court. Cause that, I think that was your gift or is your gift, Jay. So appreciate yeah, you sharing that. It was our last, our last question for our conversation this morning. And I'm really curious to your answer. I have no idea what you're going to say, but of all the people that influenced your life, Jay, uh, as leaders or instructors in the military or coaches in sports, teachers, parents, Who's the person that's had the biggest impact on you and why? Well, that's a tough one because there's a lot. Um, 
I'm going to chunk it into three different buckets. Um, the, the first one is Jackie, who, as a 20-year-old, um, you know, despite my good luck's charm and, and incredible body, <laughs> she noticed she knew she noticed something more in me than I knew about myself. Yeah. And and a, and a certain core quality of and potential that, frankly, at the time was just being not wasted, but uh, uh, squandered and not maximized to its potential. Uh, right. I think as I got into military, I had two amazing battalion commanders. Uh, one I'm still in touch with. Another one who just passed away, who did make full colonel. Uh, he was kind of like the, uh, he was a chopper pilot in Vietnam. And uh, he was a wild man in the 80s, that's for sure. Uh, and he would have been great allergan material. He was kind of like the the the, the uh, colonel, uh, the Robert Duvall character in Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah, okay. Now and, and another one that was more of a kind of a bookish studious. So I learned the, you know, the kind of brash, out there, front leadership, you know, being visible, but yet genuine. But I also then was challenged by the follow on person that said, you're good, but you're not as good as you think you are. And the reason you're not as good as you think you are is because you need to be more technically savvy. And I realized I got to open my, you know, we, we were in an M1A2 uh, battalion and I happened to be in a captain's role as a lieutenant. And I realized I have an opportunity here to learn more about how this machine works and how we repair it and uh, how we get them ready for battle. Cause that was basically my, my third job in, in, in role. And then of course, uh, on the pharma side, you can't go, uh, without mentioning Sheldon, may he rest in peace. Uh, you brought him up a few times. I think he's all, he's had amazing impact on all of us in terms of us understanding what our potentials are or were and uh, how we could get the the most out of it uh, and certainly uh, taught us to be genuine and taught us not to put up with BS. But he also showed us probably how, in, in some cases, um, <laughs> how um, it may not be the right way to do things, but you still want to be heard. And uh, and the importance of having fun at work, which I thought was incredible. Yeah. And I've you know I've got a mentor here, Ron Philp, who's the CEO of of Spark, who took me in. Uh, you know, he came in as a consultant. Uh, his goal was to evaluate and keep or fire people. And he and I connected from day one. And once he realized I got it, uh, he he focused his efforts elsewhere. Uh, and as he moved through the organization, I moved with him and, uh, you know, I wouldn't be where I'm sitting now if it wasn't for him. So, uh, I know that's a long question. to No, no, listen, when you've had the kind of great run you've had, Jay, it doesn't surprise me that a few people came to mind that definitely deserve to be mentioned. And I love the mosaic of skills you talked about there from Jackie, right, right to the last example. So, well, Jay, we really appreciate your time this morning. Um, it's been great to catch up. We got to do this more often, not necessarily on a podcast, but let's stay in touch and congratulations to you and your family and all the successes you've had both personally and professionally. Happy to help in any way I can, Rob. It's wonderful connecting with you and Eric. Eric, nice to meet you and looking uh, forward to continuing the conversation. All right. Take care, Jay. All right, buddy. See you guys.